In seminary, you are regaled with these stories of these legendary pastors leading their churches through these epic journeys through the book of Romans. John Piper, when he preached through Romans for Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota, preached over 220 messages from the book of Romans. But that doesn't hold a candle to the legendary English pastor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who spent over 370 sermons in the book of Romans, and he finished at Romans 14, 17 because his health gave out. Twelve and a half years, he wore himself out preaching the book of Romans. And that kind of got me to thinking, what's the most time we've spent in any book of the Bible since I've been the pastor at Blue Valley Baptist Church? And it is, in case you're wondering, the book of Hebrews. If you've been here a long time, you may remember the epic Hebrew sermon series, which was broken up in parts. But there were 54 messages from the book of Hebrews. The second, right after it, 53 messages from the Gospel of John. And after I finished those two sermon series, I kind of wrestled with the question. After spending all of that time in those books, if I went up to a member of Blue Valley Baptist Church and asked them, what's the book of Hebrews about? What's the book of John about? Would they be able to tell me? And it just occurred to me that the vast majority, after, after almost 55 messages through those books, wouldn't be able to tell me. And I suspect that had you gone to the members of Bethlehem Baptist Church or Martin Lloyd-Jones Church and said at the conclusion of those series, what's the book of Romans about? I suspect that they would not have been able to tell you. It has occurred to me that sometimes we preachers dole out such bite-sized portions of God's Word that we never appreciate what the full meal tastes like. And so well, you don't have to amen it that quickly. I mean, I'm, tr I'm confessing to you here. I'm saying I've made a mistake. So <laughs> I may need to go back on sabbatical. Impulse control is apparently not improved. Anyway, anyway, <laughs> I, uh, I'd always told myself if we ever preached through Romans at Blue Valley, that we'd just do it in 16 messages. We'd spend one message for each chapter. We're not going to do that either. We're actually going to spend one church year all together. There will be 40 messages from the book of Romans. But because I really have a strong desire for us to be able to collectively answer together, what's the book of Romans about when we finish this in August? We're going to do something we've never done before is that at key section breaks, we're going to pull back and think of it as, as climbing a mountain. We're going to get to certain spots on the trailhead, and we're going to look back, and we're going to see where we've come. We're, we're going to see what Paul, the author, is doing. Because as complex as Romans can be, admittedly, and as easy as it is to get lost in the forest of the book uh, or uh, lost in the trees of the book of Romans, it is possible to discern really the, the quite simple argument that Paul is making. And we came to that first big section break last week. Now let's remind ourselves what Paul is doing. Paul is introducing himself. 
to the people of Rome. He had never been to this church. They had heard of him. They knew something of his ministry, but they had never met him personally. And he is going to Rome for the hope that they will join him in his efforts to spread the gospel really to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so by way of introduction of himself and his ministry, he supplies them with the book of Romans and says to them, this is what I am all about. And the thesis statement of everything is that great statement that I finished with at the end of September, where he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God of salvation, for salvation, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So having made that statement, this is what this letter I am writing to you is all about. He begins to kind of support his argument and starts with the notion that he led with in verse 16, that the gospel is the power to save everyone. Now, because our, our halos are, are screwed on very tight, we say, well, sure, absolutely, I get that, I get that. But, but listen, the gospel is the only thing that can save anyone. Let's get a little deeper. Without the gospel, no one can experience salvation. I'm, I'm, okay, I'll, get, I'll give that to you. It's, it's true, yes. I, you know, I've done some bad things. Well, no, 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 no. Listen. If it weren't for Jesus, all of us deserve the wrath and judgment of God. And he begins to support that truth by making three real kind of summary points that unpack the truth of why everyone needs the gospel. First, everyone needs the gospel. Everyone needs Jesus because no one is innocent. No one is innocent. Now, no one is innocent means everyone is guilty, right? Can we just state that in, in that way. No one being innocent means that everyone is guilty, but we're all guilty before God based on what we have received in advance. So for, for the Jewish people, what they had received are the scriptures, the, the, the Old Testament that, that showed them the pathway to God's righteousness, and they are held accountable by that. But not everybody got that. But everybody did, and this is where he goes first, everybody did get a sunset, Everybody did get the experience of, of being on a, on, a, on a beach and watching the ocean roll in. Everybody does get the experience of looking into the face of a newborn child and reaching the conclusion there must be a creator. There must be a creator. Why is that? Well, because of what we see in verse 19 of Romans 1. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And then he says, so that they are without excuse. He is saying that if you wake up in the world and look at the world around you, you will come to the conclusion that it did not just happen, that it must 
have been made, that therefore there must be a creator. And what should be triggered in all of our hearts is, is a pursuit, a lifelong pursuit of finding and knowing that creator. But something happened in the human heart, in every human heart. He'll say later on that that something goes all the way back to Adam. And that something is a desire to say, there may be a creator, but I'm my own God. I'm my own God. And there begins to be an effort to turn the created order upside down to serve self. And Paul says that, and he uses really as his primary example the sin of homosexuality, saying that it is a perversion of, of, of the created order, the, the assignment of gender for the purpose of, of uh, picturing the image of God ultimately in man, but also for uh, human flourishing and reproduction. Mankind twists that back on itself because they want to say, I am my God, and there's a very real habit in the uh, circles in which we run to want to say that what Paul is doing here is saying that homosexuality is worse than every other sin. But if you read authentically the end of Romans chapter 1, that's not at all what he is saying. He is using it as an example where the logic is pretty clear, but then he begins to say it shows itself in a whole lot of things, not just the sin of homosexuality. Well, what kind of things are we talking about here? Well, I mean, he, he says in, in 29, they are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They do not only do them, but they give approval, hearty approval, some translations say, to those who practice them. Just out of curiosity, anybody come out of that clean? I've spent six weeks with my wife. If I tried to say to you, I'm good, she'd say, well, I don't know. I don't know. Nobody comes out of that clean. So he uses homosexuality as an illustration to to demonstrate the logic of mankind saying there may be a creator, but I want to be my own God. But then he says it shows up in a whole lot of different things, and he's meaning to say by doing all of this that no one is innocent. That's why everyone needs the gospel. No one is innocent before God. And we will admit, because we've been conditioned to do so in church life, well, I'm not innocent. You know, I have. I have slandered, and I have coveted and I've, I've done some things like that. But then what we do in our lives is we say, well, I may have done some of those things, but I'm not as bad as them. I'm not as, as given over to things as they are. And by extension, what we are saying is, is that the, the power of God may be necessary in the gospel of Jesus Christ to save everyone, but it doesn't need to work as hard. To save me. And Paul, being a master of communication, knows what he's doing. He's setting a trap. I mean, you, you start talking about these kinds of sins, and it's human nature to skip over your sins and look at everybody else's. <laughs> and, and then he springs the trap. He's saying, you may admit on some level that no one's innocent, but my next point in this effort to prove that the 
gospel is the power to save everyone is this. No one is worthy. No one is worthy of it. No one is worthy of it. Verse 1, chapter 2. Therefore, he says, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, everyone who looks down your nose at these other sins on the list, but ignore your own. For in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. What things? Everything we just read from the end of Romans chapter 1. He's saying you do all of these things, all of us, because we are guilty before God, we are not innocent, are not worthy of the salvation that God would bring us. Now let's stop and think for just a moment about what are our two paths of escape from that feeling that I'm not worthy are, or that, uh, that I'm worthy in some way of salvation are. What are the two pathways? The two pathways are, well, but I'm super religious. I mean, I go to church. I do all of the religious stuff. That's one means of escape. And the other means of escape is, well, I'm not very churchy. I don't, I don't think much of religion. I had a guy say that to me this week. Don't think much of religion, but I'm a good guy. I'm a good guy. I live by a moral code. Well, listen to what Paul says about those things, verse 12, Romans 2, for all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. Now, the law that he is talking about is the Old Testament, and he's talking about these, let's just call them moral pagans, good citizens, not religious, not into Jesus at all, who generally live a good life, live by their moral code. He says that all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. And then he goes on to say, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So what he is saying is, is that these moral pagans that are out there have this moral code that they say they are living by that makes them somehow worthy of whatever might await them in the afterlife. But if you were to get them to be honest with themselves, you would ask them, have you lived perfectly by your moral code? Have you never violated your moral code at all? And if they're going to be honest with you, they're going to say, well, I've, I've, I've transcended that or, you know, transgressed that at times. I've, I've not lived by my moral code. And so, okay, that makes you what? Guilty. Well, I'm religious. I mean, I read the Bible every day and I go to church every week and I do everything that I'm supposed to do. All right, really, everything? Have you ever violated the tenets of your religion? Have you ever violated the, the tenets of your church? Well, yeah. Right, what does that make you? Guilty? It makes you guilty before God? So what? No one's worthy of salvation. Because we are all guilty, no one is worthy of of salvation. He says in verse 14, for when Gentiles, moral pagans who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. When they do what the Old Testament says without even knowing it's connected to the Old Testament, think of it by way of the Ten Commandments, when they just kind of get, as most people do, that it's wrong to kill, wrong to steal, wrong to covet, do all of those things, and live by that, those things then become their law and they transgress it 
eventually. Verse 15, they show that the work of the law is actually written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness, telling them, sometimes I live by it, sometimes I do not, and there will come a day when those things will either accuse or excuse them, and that day is when the gospel... Uh, according to his gospel, God judges the secrets of men by the perfect standard of Jesus. And when we're all placed, whether we're religious or moral or just absolute reprobates, when we're all placed before the perfect standard of Jesus, no one is worthy of salvation. None of us. So no one is innocent. We're all guilty. That's why we need Paul's gospel. None of us is worthy of salvation. We all fall short of our moral code of what the scriptures say to us. That's why we need the gospel. And if he pulled up short there, I mean, bummer. This is not something that we want to experience. If he pulls up short in verse 19 of chapter 3 where he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. If we realize that our moral code and our religion only serves to show us that we're sinners, there's nothing worth thinking or doing or living. But Paul is not just trying to show us that no one is innocent and, and no one is worthy. He's trying to finish with this point where Jonathan was last week. He's trying to bring us to the point where we understand no one is without hope. Because we are all guilty, none of us are innocent. Because all of us are unworthy, because of our sin. God has understood that he needs to do something on our behalf in order for us to be able to experience salvation and that something is someone. It is Jesus Christ. He says, Romans 3.23, which all of us uh, probably know for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but we pull up short with the rest of his point where he says, and we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What is he saying? What is his point? He is saying that if any of us have any hope of being saved because we are guilty before God and because none of us are worthy of salvation, then God's going to have to do something for us. And that something, again, is someone. It is Jesus Christ. And in verse 25, he tells how that happened. It happened because Jesus became a propitiation by his blood. Nobody uses that word anymore. But the word propitiation means an appeasement. It satisfied all of this wrath that Jonathan talked about against sin. The death of Christ absorbs the penalty and the wrath of God against our sin. Think about it. All of the divine anger against our sin was poured out fully, completely on Jesus Christ. There is, for the person who has availed themselves of the sacrifice of Christ nothing left of God for him to give except his love. All of it was poured out on Jesus. But he's also a substitute for us in our righteousness. Our righteousness falls 
short. We are not able to live by the perfect standards of our moral code or the perfect standard of our religion. And so in Christ Jesus, God gave us what is necessary for his wrath to be appeased and for the righteous requirement of our moral code of scriptures to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It's all in Jesus. That's why the, the gospel is the power of God to save everyone. The reprobate of chapter 1. The upright religious person and the moral pagan of chapter 2. Everyone needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's the first part of what he does in Romans. He unpacks the idea that all of us need Jesus and he explains to us why. Because we're all guilty and none of us are worthy of salvation on our own merits. And so then what do we do with this? So often in our, our Bible study, we, uh, we pull up short of the goal. We think the moment that we have learned something, we're good. I just learned something. I know why chapters 2 and chapters 3 exist because Paul is explaining in chapters 2 and chapters 3 why everyone needs the gospel. Good, I've learned something. That's it. No. You're supposed to do something with it. You're supposed to do something with it. And the primary thing that any of us need to do with it is come to grips with the fact of whether or not we have actually received this Jesus as our Savior and as our Lord if we've surrendered our life to him and if our lives are becoming the vehicle through which Jesus lives his life here on planet Earth. That's what we're supposed to do. That's the first thing. But there's something else for, for Christians. And Paul's writing to Christians. But he's... He's writing to Christians really kind of as they have always been. The moment they find out about the grace of Jesus, there's a tendency to become very self-righteous. And he's writing to them. And he's wanting them to have a takeaway from what he has said. And what's their takeaway? What's our takeaway? I think there are two things. First of all, I think... He's saying to his readers and to us today, have some stinking humility. Just have a little bit of humility. You know, I've said this to you before. I'll say it to you again. The quickest way to build self-righteousness in a congregation is to constantly preach to you about other people's sins. And churches are really good at it. I mean, we're really, really good at it. We'll look at those sinners and, and look at those sinners. I mean, I have people come to me all the time, and they'll say, Pastor, we need a real strong, powerful statement from, from the pulpit about, about the, the, the sin of homosexuality and the assignment of gender roles. I mean, you need to take a bold stand. And I, you know, I've never shied away from being able to say those things. I mean, we hear people say to me all the time, we need to make sure we're preaching about those things. You know what I've not heard? I've not heard people come up to me and say, you know what, pastor gossip is a terrible problem in the world today and we need a strong, bold, clear biblical statement on the sin of gossip. The next time that happens will be the first. Pastor, we live in uh, one of the wealthiest counties in the United States of America and covetousness and greed 
are real, real problems. We need a real bold, strong statement from Scripture on the sin of covetousness and greed. The next time I'm asked to do that will be the first time that I'm asked to do that. Pastor, I'm just grieved by how Christians online and in conversations and on social media can just slander other brothers and sisters in Christ, call them anything because they're on an opposite side of some ideological divide in the world. And, and, and I'm grieved at how people that are going to spend eternity with other brothers and sisters in Christ can just call them, you know, heretics or, 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 or Marxists or, you know, liberals. I'm grieved by that. And we just need a real strong, clear biblical statement on the sin of slander. Next time I'm asked to do that will be the first time I'm asked to do that. What am I trying to prove? I'm trying to show us that the moment we find Jesus, we begin to somehow build up in our minds that we are more worthy of his grace than anybody else. So we need some stinking humility. Absolute humility. There may be people whose sin is more evident and more damaging to their ability to conduct a life on planet Earth, but they are no more distant from God than you were before Jesus. Have some stinking humility. And then the next thing is this. Have gospel passion. Do you know who we live around in Johnson County? For the most part, moral pagans. They have a form of religion, some of them, but they don't know the power of God to save, and a good many of them aren't even religious. In my neighborhood, my neighbors, who I have good relationships with, are moral pagans. And they are not bad people. I mean, if I needed them, I wouldn't hesitate to call them. If they needed me, they wouldn't hesitate to call me. But here's what they have not done to this point. They have not yet uh, responded to an invitation to go to Blue Valley. And guess what? They're not gonna. They're not gonna. So how are these moral pagans going to get the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ that is the power to save everyone? It's going to be me. It's going to be Julie. It's going to be us on our back porch feeding them dinner and looking for gospel opportunities. It's going to be Julie and I being uh, present and excited when their children are born. It's going to me just being a, a good neighbor. It's going to be me living out the life of Jesus. It's going to be me becoming a vehicle through which Jesus lives out his life on uh, Sagamore Road in Leewood. That's what these chapters ought to do for me. I am saved by the grace of God and nothing else. And so I cannot remain silent about that gospel with the moral pagans around me. You can't either. So some humility. We're all sinners, and that's not just church words for us to say, but some of us are better. We're all sinners. All of us are guilty. None of us are worthy. Have some humility and then have some passion to share that message with others. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.